don't know if you've had experience where you're expecting something and it was not. One of, I think, more of the more memorable experiences for me in school and seminary was a, a class that I had with um, Dr. Paige Patterson, who was the president at the time. And I had some of my best grades ever had in school and seminary. I had some of my worst grades ever had in seminary at the same time. It was a, a challenging uh, arena. Uh, Dr. Patterson's class was especially difficult. He would have what was called blitz quizzes. And we would usually get assigned some insane amount to read each uh, week. And then we were asked uh, five questions, um, and that would be based on what we read, and that would form our grade for the week. And our our grade for class was made up of these quizzes, um, and then one paper that you would write at the end. And so if you missed one question, bam, 80. (laughs) You missed two questions, bam, 60. Um, You do that. Several times, you're taking that class over again. (laughs) There was one uh, class where uh, the the readings were uh, very technical. But there was one book I thought, you know, we're going to read this in book for the week. And um, I'm going to have this one down. I I am going to ace that quiz. And I read every single page of that book. I had things memorized. I studied it, and I thought... There is nothing he's going to ask that I don't know. And so I was eager to show up for class that day. One good thing is that if you signed your name, you got one question right. (laughs) Felt good so far. The next question. Who is the publisher of the book? (laughs) Ah! He never asked that question before. No one ever asked that question. Bam, 80. It's like, ah, all that work. I was expecting something, and it was not. Some of uh, folks, as you leave here today, you'll see them coming into the parking lot. They're expecting service to start. It's not. Reality hits. Life, most of the time, hopefully when that comes our way, is usually something we can recover from. But in the text I want to share with us this morning in John 11, I think that Jesus is hitting on something at the end of our life. And... It seems to me that in life, there are a lot of people expecting what life is to be about. And Jesus, in John chapter 11, especially verse 25 through 26, tells us what life is about. And the sad reality is that when we come to the testing of our life, we realize questions are being asked. That we're not prepared for. When it comes time to dying, dying is very much a test. It's a test of what you've lived for. And does it matter? 
Three weeks ago, I was preaching on First Timothy. Three, I think it was three Sundays ago, and I prefaced this by saying, "I want you to listen as dying people listening to a dying person." Since that Sunday, we've had two deaths in our church body. One of them, of course, is Josh that was there um, three Sundays ago celebrating his 20th birthday, all of us knowing unless a a miracle happens, then he would die shortly, and that's been the case. Doris Davis was the other one, passed away, both of which have been able to see in some of their last few days, and um, talking to them, and um, just being there, seeing that. And so I, I want to deviate a little bit of what we would normally be preaching on in 1 Timothy. But there was a, a, a verse last Sunday that has echoed in my heart. And it was uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, I believe it's verse 6, and referring to widows. And it was saying that there's some widows that you don't put on the list of extra care. And these are the widows who are self-indulgent in their life because the Bible says that these women who are self-indulgent are dead, though they still live. And I thought, wow. For the Bible pronounced people dead. Time of death already has occurred. And they're just waiting for the heart to stop and so that the heart will catch up with their spirit, which is already dead. And I thought, how many of us are dead How many times have I been dead? We're all born self-indulgent. We're born dead. Unless something supernatural happens in our life, we are just waiting for death to occur. And it's just a matter of how we may entertain our mind, entertain our life. What can occupy our days until death occurs? And I thought, well... If that's the case, if if those who are self-indulgent are dead, though they're still alive, then it seems to reason that the opposite ought to be true. That those who are in Christ, those who are not living for themselves, are living though they physically die. When I was considering visiting uh, Kim and Larry as I got word um, about Josh's death, they were at Wake Med, or at uh, Chapel Hill, and uh, drove up to the clinic to, to see where they were at, and I was just thinking through some of the last talks I've had with them, and I remember that I'd shared with them John chapter 11, um, and preparing and, and talking to Josh as to why some people may not die, and, and what Jesus had to say about it, and I remembered some of the things I said, and I looked there, and I thought, wouldn't you know it, here it is, right here in John chapter 11, Verse 25 and 26, the exact opposite of what we looked at last Sunday. So I thought it would be fitting for us to look at this. Um, I'm not going to have much time in the service later on today to, uh, to preach. And so this is the funeral message for me right here. Um, we're going to share some other things later on. Um, and so the story is, is the Lazarus has died. This is a good friend of Jesus. Mary and Martha, I shared with you last time that when you looked at a lot of the resurrection occurrences in the Bible, most of them were tied to a widowed 
situation where God supernaturally intervenes, especially in caring for the widows. And in this case, there is no mention of a man in Mary and Martha's life. And so you get the idea that Lazarus was kind of the sole breadwinner for the family and as such leaving his good friends Mary and Martha in a very widowed state. And it is in this state that Jesus intervenes. But Jesus knew about it, knew about the sickness in advance, was some distance away. But though knowing the sickness was there, delayed, intentionally delayed, so that the sickness would come to death. And only after hearing about Lazarus' death does Jesus then take the initiative with the disciples and say, let us go to Judea, to Jerusalem area, just as two miles away from Jerusalem, and the disciples are kind of not sure about that because there's a lot of people that want to kill Jesus there, but nonetheless, Jesus is, is going despite what the disciples have to say. And as he goes, he gets close. Mary and Martha hear about Jesus' arrival. Uh, Martha leaves the home and goes to meet Jesus wherever Jesus is at and goes to him and simply notice the same question Martha asked, Mary also asked. You see in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the question that's on their heart and mind. Even as Lazarus is sick and dying, they send word out knowing what Jesus can do, and their hope has always been up to this point, if Jesus just can get here, he can save Lazarus. And so, Mary, when coming, notice verse 32, separate from each one. Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why do they both ask the same question? Because it's the question of the heart. It's what they've been sharing with one another. It's maybe what Lazarus had perhaps said. If Jesus just gets here, I'll be okay. It's always a powerful passage when we are dealing with what we would call untimely deaths. And I love the fact that Jesus never gives a reason. Maybe I don't love that fact, but it's there. Jesus never gives the reason. And his answer is always himself. Just so you know, when you have questions, don't expect Jesus to give you the reasons why Some things work out the way they do because you know what we'd do if he gave you the reasons? You'd argue with him. So Jesus doesn't give the reasons. He gives himself and he reveals a little bit more about who I am. He says, I'm not going to give you the reasons. Let me just tell you who I am. And let that be your comfort. Because I don't want reason to be your comfort. I want the person of Christ to be your comfort. And so let's stand as we read this together. Reading from verse 17 through 26. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You may be seated. As Martha Martha's coming up to Jesus, Martha feels like she knows Jesus. In fact, it's said in the Bible that they were close friends. He's been in their home. He's served, or she served him. And so there's an intimacy there. But Jesus is about to break open to Martha who he is in a way that Martha has not quite got her mind around yet. Understand, all of us think we know Jesus. But there will be times and circumstances in life where God will break open who he is and will break apart what we think we know. This certainly happens here. And so Martha is speaking out of faith. It sounds good so far. All right, Jesus, he's dead. But I know that even still, you've got the power. You can intercede. You've got the ability to do these things. And so uh, Jesus simply says, well, your brother will rise again. And she's thinking in very general terms. She's kind of afraid to speak or to think of anything more specific and say, yeah, I know. There will be a resurrection someday. He will rise again in the final day. That's true, Jesus. That's going to happen for all people. There's going to be a resurrection. It's what you're going to be resurrected to that matters, uh, as we read later on. Uh, but Jesus is saying, okay, yes, but you're not, you're not tracking with me yet. I'm going to speak in more specific terms. Yes, there's a resurrection, but... It's not something, it is a person. I am the resurrection and the life. This is one of the great I am statements that Jesus um, brings out several times uh, and recorded for us. Uh, and, and it goes back to the, the Mount Sinai experience with Moses in the burning bush. When, when Moses asked, who, who, who am I going to say is sending me? And, and the, the burning bush, the voice speaking out, it says, tell them I am, I am. There, there is no limits to who I am. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I am that one. And let me tell you how it speaks to you in this specific occasion. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And then he elaborates on this. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. This is kind of the reverse. Well, I've shared with you before that those who are self-indulgent, though they physically are still having a beating heart, they're already dead. But Jesus is saying the reverse, that these people here that believe in me, though their heart may physically stop beating, they continue to live. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he's saying this physical death of what you know is not the same anymore. 
that there is something that continues on, that there is a heart connection made to the living one. Now, this is a very simple thing. In Christ, there is eternal life. John said it this way, He that hath son hath life. He that does not have a son does not have life. What does that mean? What does that mean? John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, gives us the summary of the book. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs of the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 John writes again in that epistle, so these things have been written to you that you may know you have eternal life. In John chapter 17, verse 1 to 3, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life unto all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Jesus is about to explain to us what is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What is eternal life? What is life? Knowing the eternal God, relating to him, responding to him. Very simple. All that life we've known up to this point, crying, breathing, heart beating, being able to physically respond and react is a shadow that points to what real life is. And that is responding to God, the living one. This is the church of the living God. It is to be an assembly of people who are reacting and seeking and having their life from the eternal Father. Which means a heart beating doesn't stop it. A heart stopping beating doesn't stop it. Now, all of us would say, okay, pastor, you're not bringing out anything new here. I'm not going to bring out anything new to you. I'm just going to ask what Jesus asked. You really believe that? Notice where Jesus is asking this and when he's asking it. He is asking it on his way to a cemetery. He's asking it to a woman who just had a funeral for her brother who was the one that sustained her and now is in a tomb and has been in a tomb for four days. He is saying that in the midst of grief, he is saying, do you believe it? I found that we will give lip service because we know it's the right thing to say. It's after all, it's in the Bible. We claim the name Christian. But when it's all said and done, when we're looking at our own death, or we're looking at the death of someone else that we love, for some reason, what we have said with our lips has not connected with our brain or with our heart. Here's how I know that. There's some people I talk to and they find out that they might have terminal sickness and disease and death. And it's like they're reading the Bible for the very first time. 
I've met with some people, and they're about to have surgery, and they are clinging on to me, holding on, crying, sobbing, fearful. And the thought occurs to me, why? Why is it now you are so scared? I've known you've gone to church. I've known you've read the Bible. I've known you've heard these things. And it is occurring to me that they have done this. But now when they're looking at their own death, they are terrified. Because what they've said with their mouth is not what they believed in their heart or what they've hoped in. And it's like they're having a quiz put right in front of them. And they realize, I wasn't expecting this question. I didn't know I was going to be asked this. It is healthy. So very healthy for you to face your own mortality. For you to reckon that sometime someone's going to refer to you in the past tense. And it's going to happen. There are those of us who do not like to think about such things. And I ask why. Why do you not want to think about your own death? What reason do you have? And I would argue with you that it's not grounded in faith. For why we do not want to think about our own passing, our own death. Let me just bring out some implications from the simple truth that Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Here's one implication. If Christ is life, then all else is death. If Christ is life, then all else is death. And that was what was given to us in 1 Timothy 5, 6. When it refers to the widow who is self-indulgent and says that this woman who's self-indulgent is dead, though she continues to have a beating heart. If Christ is life, then all else is death. So consequently, if I live for anything else, then I'm already dead. If I live for anything else, then I'm already dead. And the problem with this anything else bit is there's some really good things in the anything else category. I mean, I'm talking about family. I'm talking about your spouse, your husband, your wife. I'm talking about your parents. I'm talking about your children. I'm talking about job. I'm talking about adrenaline. I'm talking about adventure. I'm talking about hobbies. I'm talking about things of beauty. I'm talking about power and influence and and work good things but it occurs to me that when you're lying on your deathbed those things are about to leave your life and they have nothing within them to give you one more heartbeat and the fact of the matter is you're going to be separated from them They're good things, but living for them is a bad thing. In fact, it's kind of like leukemia. 
If we could understand that these things that are good, if I live for them, are deadly. It's kind of like liver cancer, kidney cancer. There's some things I just don't want as a part of my life. I don't want to live for these things because they have nothing to give me in regards to life. Just an interesting thought. As Jesus is here with Martha, Jesus believes something. Jesus believes that Lazarus is not dead. How do I know that? Because Jesus has said in another question that God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And that's why scripture says, uh, referring, God referring to himself, that he is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though they no longer live here, God doesn't refer to them in past tense because they're not past tense. And so as he's sitting here with Martha, Jesus knows that Lazarus is not past tense. He is still very much alive. Let me just share with you a dead person in Christ is living more than a living unbeliever. A dead person in Christ. Someone who has gone in the history of life that they believe in Jesus Christ and they trusted in Jesus Christ. They are living more than those of us who is a baby born and just a young... They're living more than, than an Evan, uh, a young little boy that does not know Jesus Christ as his Savior Lord. More than a 30-year-old that is active and very at the prime of their mental abilities, hopefully... Uh, but they're apart from Christ. From God's perspective, they're living more than someone's heart beating but dead to Christ. As Jesus is sitting there talking to Martha, he knows very well that Lazarus is more alive than some of the people he's talking to. Now let me just share with you some other implications. We talk about if Christ is life, then all else is death. And if I live for anything else, then I'm already dead. Third implication. It's not that I give my life to God. But God gives his life to me. It's not that I can give my life to God. But that God gives his life to me. What kind of life was Lazarus given to God at that point? He's dead. He's not visiting any widows. He's not taking care of his sisters. He's not giving. He's dead. But it didn't matter. Because God gave his life to Lazarus. So many times we say, if I give my life to God... Then I've got hope. And we think, you know, when it comes to dying, maybe our confidence is that we gave our life to God. We, we went to church. We went on mission trips. We went to the poor. We preached the good message. We knew the word of God. And I gave my life to God. And that is not our hope. It's not giving our life to God, but that God gives his life to you. That is our hope. That is their treasure. It's not how we serve God, but how God has served us in giving us life. Now, the fact is, for us to get that, 
we have to die to ourselves, don't we? We can't have the life of God if we're living our life. We have to obey the Spirit of God. Here's the thing that I found. When Saul was disobedient to God, King Saul, he tried to make up for it by giving up a lot of sacrifices. And Samuel comes to the scene and realizes the sin, and he says to King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. I just want to present to you, there is no degree of good works that you're able to do to make up for how you're not obeying God. God is not looking for your sacrifices. He's looking for obedience. It's not how you're giving your life to God. It's just simply that you understand that life is in Christ. And he's given us your Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit. And so we obey him. We obey him. Here's the thing I found. As I was visiting Ms. Doris Davis... And I know that her hope, and whatever time period it was between when I was visiting her and, and really was just about 24 hours, her only hope was at the moment of her death, the Spirit of God was there and bringing her spirit to Jesus Christ. Supernatural work of God. And I thought to myself, how is it that we desperately cling at that moment to death to the Spirit of God's working in our life? But when it looks like we've got plenty of heartbeats in front of us, plenty of abilities around us, we see the Holy Spirit as an option. One of a few things of which we can surrender our heart to. just want to present to you that being filled with the Spirit of God and surrendering to God's working in your life is not an option. It is what believers do because it's their hope. And I'm just going to say that if you're thinking differently because you've got six hours in front of you, then we're not being consistent. Whether we have 60 years in front of us or six hours in front of us, the hope is still the same. God, unless your spirit lives in me, I have no hope. And the only hope I have when it comes to my dying day is the same hope I have today. And when I don't know the difference is that God, fill my life. Let me listen to you. Let me obey you. Let me just understand that it's you. It's not me doing good things for you. But it's you living it in my life. If Christ is life, then all else is death. If I live for anything else, then I'm already dead. And it's not that I give my life to God, but that God gives his life to me. Let me share with you another implication. It is not an order of priorities but one priority. 
If Christ is life, then it's not an order of priorities. You know what I mean? God, family, country. Some of us, God, family, church. And we've got our priorities. Work somewhere, family somewhere, your own well-being is somewhere. It's just one priority. Because the reality is that it's in Christ that is in life. So how much death do I want to dabble in? If I'm separating it from Christ. Anything apart from Christ is death. So I'm not going to say, okay, Christ over here, and then separate from Christ is now my family. When, when it's separate from Christ, then that family has become cancer to my liver. And so when it comes time to dying, then living for that family apart from Christ has been lost to me and the family and vice versa. And I have no hope because my family, as much as, as great as they are, they have nothing in me that can sustain my spirit for my death. It is not an order of priorities, but one priority. This is how Scripture when it says being pure of heart, this is what it's talking about. One mind. One life. One goal. Christ. And so as I am living with my family to say, Christ, what would you want me to do? And, and when I li- listen to my wife or I'm talking to her and I'm trying to relate to her, the question is, how can I serve Christ by serving her? When I'm taking care of my kids, how can I serve Christ via serving my children? When I'm in my place of employment, how can I serve Christ in this place of employment via the employers? And when it comes time to dying, how do I serve Christ by dying? Did you know you can serve Christ by dying? Have you thought about that? It can be. It can be. When you realize that all is Christ. Isn't that the attitude of Paul? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. To understanding that we're not losing one thing, but we're gaining an infinite amount. It's not what I profess, but what I live. So, the question is there at the end. Do you believe this? Do you? It's not, okay, yeah, that's what the Bible says. It's not just, well, pastor, you're saying it, okay? It's not just, yeah, okay, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Jesus rose again. He's resurrection. He's greater than death. There's some things you can't just intellectually have assent to. Like 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's some things you must trust in. 
hold on to. Make it the formative thing of your life. And I'm just going to say that if you believe that Christ is the resurrection, but it's not forming you, you're insulting who Christ is. You're belittling. So consequently, the worst thing that can happen to us is not dying. There's many things worse than death. In fact, it occurred to me that if these things are true, as Scripture says, then it could very well be that God would orchestrate such events so that my heart would stop beating so that I might have life. I do not know this to be true. I do not know God's mind. And I'm not going to claim I know God's mind. But I will just bring out one thing with Josh Jabez. This is something the family shared. Something significant has happened in the last few months in Josh's life. His mindset's different. His attitude's different. The things he's talking about is different. What he trusts in is different. Now, he's had leukemia longer than that. Something in the last few months, something significant had changed. And I've thought, could it be that God would allow leukemia to come in so that someone might have life? Could it be that death could come, physical death, so that someone might have spiritual life? I don't know. But it seems like spiritual life is infinitely more valuable than physical life. Physical life is a shadow that points to the spiritual reality that it goes on for eternity. Could it be that God would allow a shadow to fall off so that someone may know light in life? I would say, yeah, it could be. I don't know why God's allowed leukemia and why God's chosen to work in the way he's worked with Joshua Chavis, I don't know why God did it the way he did with Lazarus. But all I know is that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he asked us, do we believe it? And so if we believe it, then someone dying at 20 or 80, it doesn't really matter if they know Jesus Christ. doesn't really matter. And we think to ourselves, well, you know, as a 20-year-old, he doesn't get to experience some of the things I've experienced in life. Family, have his own, his wife, children, job. Name any of those experiences that you might have had since you were 20. And some of us start realizing, hmm, they're not always that great, are they? But let me share with you the best things that you've had experience. All they do is just point to God. The love of family, the love of a wife, employment, influence that comes therein. All they do is point to God. Let me just share with you. Joshua has not lost anything. He's dying at 20. 
thinking about another funeral I did. Same name, Joshua. Except this one was a baby. And asked the same question. When babies die, what have they lost? I'm of the theological thought that when babies die, God receives them by grace and mercy like he would receive us. Knowing a little bit about the heart of God through Jesus Christ and how he desired all the children to come to him. And with all these things being true, I would say that even babies by the name of Joshua haven't lost one thing and we think well but they haven't experienced all the life that I've had let me share with you the only value of all of your physical life has been simply to bring you to Christ that's all the value of your life and listen if all of your life hasn't brought you to Christ then all you've had is greater condemnation Because you've had shadows of life, but you rejected the reality of Christ. So you tell me a baby. (laughs) All they've done is been forfeited to greater condemnation. But I don't know why some people live and some people die and why ages they do. All I can point to is what Jesus is pointing to. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That answer must be given today. I assure you, it did me no good when I got that pop quiz just trying to figure out the answer then. One of the things that we sung is at the end of our heart's test, be satisfied when I'm in the likeness of him. When you come time to die, make sure that's all you've got to do, just die. You answer the question now, do you believe it? So when we send off young families and they go to places that are dangerous and they may die or the children may die, let me ask you again. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Or is it just a great sorrowful thing that we've gone through? When we see 20-year-olds and they have leukemia do we pray more for their physical life or for their spiritual life I would say pray for both but pray infinitely more for their spiritual life when we see saints in Christ die we miss them we miss a Julian we miss a Shirley so many others that have passed on this last year or so. 
But there is a rejoicing still because we believe that there is resurrection and there is life and it's found in Christ. And this compels us to say, God, forgive me that I live for myself and take myself out of the realm of being in Christ and obedient to his spirit. God, forgive me for dabbling in spiritual cancer. It's not what we profess, but what we live. Mary gives a good confession, but when pushed to shove, interesting, she seems to resist removing the stone. Jesus is about to give her a big-time test. You believe this, Martha? All right, let's go to the tomb. Pull the tomb away. Martha says, wait a second. He's been in the tomb four days. He stinks. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come on out. How is it that you talk to dead people? Well, if Jesus is God in the flesh, eternal life is that we live to God, that we know him. All the while that Jesus is aware that Lazarus, because he has life in him, will respond to the voice of the Father. And the Father, through the Spirit, through the Son, is calling out Lazarus, and he is alive. I wonder what Lazarus was thinking. Why is all this stuff on me? Why am I in a tomb? I've not been dead. I've been alive. This past week, we've seen uh, the Venezuelan Chavez, Hugo Chavez, his death, his funeral. I was reading a report of his final moments. There was uh, the head of the presidential guard was with him in the, that last bit. And paints a picture of a man desperately clinging to life. According to his report, Chavez says, I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. Death is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't really care if you're a dictator or you're a peasant. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire or you have all kinds of people follow you cult-like manner. Time, like an ever-flowing stream, bears all its sons away. None of us are going to escape this great equalizer. The question is, will we be ready? Will our last words exhibit a desperation of a person who knows that it's all slipping away? Or will it be a person who has a foreboding sense that something more terrible than he can imagine just waits on the other side? Our will, our final words, reflect the confidence that Christ has defeated the final enemy. Will it reflect that whoever trusts in Christ will live even if he dies? If that moment was coming upon you, and you could see it as Chavez could see it, what would you say? 
Psalm 90. For the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet the pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury according to the fear that is due thee? So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee our heart of wisdom. As a pastor, I know there's a possibility that I may be speaking at your funeral. And as a pastor, there's a possibility that you may be attending my funeral. And I may think back to this day. And I would long to know the answer. Do you believe this? Put aside religion. Put aside of what all you've heard in Sunday school. And what you know is the Sunday school answer. It's very personal. God's talking to you. And he's asking you. Because the test will be given to you. You individually, not you and your family, you individually will be given a test when your heart stops beating. And what matters then is how you answer it today. Do you believe this? Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. Will you say that you will believe in it to the point that you trust in it and that is your only hope, and that he is your only reason for living? That's what it means to follow after Christ. He's your only reason for living. He's life. I can be anything other than that. He's the only reason for living. Do you have other reasons for living? What are those other reasons for living? Well, they matter when your heart stops beating. We're all dying, and I'm dying, but Jesus ever lives. The greatest thing I've got is the Spirit of Christ in my life. Don't grieve the Spirit of Christ. Let's pray.